0: Now, more than ever, climate change needs business action, but how can we move faster to slow it down? Find out more on ey.com forward slash ie.
1: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. On Tuesday, the family of Sean Fitzpatrick, the driving force behind Anglo-Irish Bank for more than 20 years, announced that he had died at age 73. He built Anglo from nothing to become the third biggest bank in Ireland and the lender of choice for many Irish property developers during the Celtic Tiger years. But after the 2008 crash, he became public enemy number one in the eyes of many Irish people. In a few moments, I'll be talking to Simon Carswell of the Irish Times about the career of Sean Fitzpatrick. In the second half of the show, Omburg Kennedy will tell me who the real climate villains in aviation are, and it's not Ryanair. But first to the death of Sean Fitzpatrick, a hugely influential figure in Irish banking over more than four decades. He would become public enemy number one for many Irish people following the collapse of Anglo in 2008 and its near 30 billion euro state bailout. Simon Carswell was finance correspondent of the Irish Times at the time of the banking and property crash and he joins me now on the line. Simon Carswell, uh, thank you for joining us. Now you became finance correspondent of the Irish Times I think back in 2007 and that's when you would have had your first face to face with Sean Fitzpatrick. And there's an interesting story around it. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. When I was starting off covering the banking beat for the Irish Times, I, just part of that kind of introductory process of getting used to the beating, understanding of it better, I contacted all the senior bankers and amongst them was Sean Fitzpatrick. Uh, so it was September 2007 when I contacted him, he was kind of keen to stress that he was no longer chief executive. He's moved, he'd moved on to become chairman um, two years previously. And I made the point. Well, you know, you you helped establish the bank. You created the bank, essentially the bank that exists now. And it'd be great to get your perspective just on where you see banking at the moment. So we had a cup of coffee around the corner at a coffee shop at the top of Dawson Street, just around the corner from um, the Anglo Irish Bank head office in St Stephen's Green. And it was really interesting. It was actually it was a very good introductory meeting to understand what Anglo viewed themselves as, what what they viewed themselves as within the banking market, and to illustrate a point what he was talking about, this kind of belt and braces approach to lending, he looked across to a building across the road and said, well, if you look at that building, um, the businesses inside it are are generating cash flow. So that pays the rent and that pays uh, the mortgage on the property. But then if there's something wrong with that, we have the security of the building itself to call in the loan and to, to sell the building. And he said, this is a kind of, he was using it as an example really to show how strong and solid uh, Anglo Irish Bank was as as a lender, but as he was talking, I noticed walking up the road is Finton Drury, who's a non executive director of the bank and Finton, um, a bit of a character, a funny guy. Kind of interrupted Sean Fitzpatrick when he was in full flow, and he said, I- "I'd say there's a lot of shite being talked here," and we all laughed. But I-, I thought that the the kind of anecdote and that that moment was kind of said a lot about the bank because while Anglo Irish Bank did have this view that they had this solid and secure lending uh, strategy. In fact, when you tore all the kind of strategy away, they were largely just a property lender. They were they were reliant very much on the property itself. And I kind of it was very much uh, kind of a, as a conversation and as a moment kind of emblematic of what was the problem with the bank, that there was it it, it wasn't really a secure lender as, as I thought it was.
1: Yeah, sure. We'll talk about the crash a little later on, but let's talk about Sean Fitzpatrick himself. Who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he get into the position to being one of the most senior bankers and influential business people in Ireland? Well, he's from uh, near Bray in County Wicklow.
2: Um, Started off in accountancy, like many bankers do. Worked his way up as a chartered accountant. Um, Got involved with a very small lender, a business lender in Dublin called Irish Bank of Commerce. And it just had had four staff at the time that he joined it. But that bank would go on and merge with two other banks, City of Dublin Bank and Anglo-Irish Bank Corporation. And that merged entity, Sean Fitzpatrick, took control as chief executive of that combined bank in 1986. And it was a tiny bank at the time. I mean, it was a loan book of about €600,000. It was very, very small. But what he did was he broke the mould in Irish banking to a degree. He saw that there was two banks there. There was a duopoly there of allied Irish banks and Bank of Ireland. And he saw that, well, I can create um, another option for, for businesses in particular. And he targeted professionals, you know, doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, who may have had their own business, their own practice. And he would offer them loans uh, for their business. And in many cases, he'd offer them loans to buy their own buildings, uh, to buy other buildings, to become landlords, and really developed from there. And in a very, very short space of time, really, in in the world of banking, it went from a loan book of 600,000 in the mid 80s, to a loan book of 34 billion by the time he handed over as chief executive to David Drum in, in 2005. And so that was an extraordinary growth. And it really, the, the bank, Anglo was dismissed by AAB and Bank of Ireland as being something of an upstart. I mean, I remember one time, the, one banker said to me that those two banks kind of dismissed Anglo as kind of a glorified pawnbroker. But then gradually, those two banks saw what Anglo was doing, this very smart business model of getting close to your customers, agreeing loan approvals very, very quickly um, and really being at the side and at the shoulder of these business people. And as the property market boomed, the bank boomed. And really the tide lifted both the bank, the property market tide lifted both the bank and all those customers and made an awful lot of people an awful lot of money.
1: Yeah. And what role did Sean Fitzpatrick play in all of that? How instrumental was was he in that? I suppose a lot of people would have this view that that he drove everything. He was the man of Anglo.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the personality that Sean Fitzpatrick had was very much the personality that Anglo as a bank had. He was very smooth talker, very gregarious, very sociable, very personable. And people liked him. People liked being in his company. Um, He knew business people very, very well. Um, he, he He was a very keen golfer. And as an example, that culture of golfing, getting out and being close to your customers was very important. So and it got to the extent that not only did they know their customers so well, that they the bank themselves, during the boom times in the noughties, the bank would approach developers with potential deals and say, well, I see what you've done here with this building site. I see what you've done here with this project. Why don't we do this together? So they, they got so close to their customers. And I, I spoke to one former bank chairman of Anglo who said that, in a way, they got too close to their customers that, in a way, the customers were calling the shots. And I think that there's some accuracy in that. The bank did get too close to its customers. But that was a, that, that was a product of Sean Fitzpatrick's personality. A lot of the way he operated as a business person, and as a banker, was very much reflected in how Anglo went about
1: doing their business. Yeah, now we know about the global financial crash in 2008 and Anglo uh, collapsed along with it. But Sean Fitzpatrick had stepped aside as chief executive in 2005, handing over the reins to David Drum, who was, I think, a surprise candidate, it's fair to say, at the time for, for that role. And I'm just wondering how deep in Anglo were in 2005. And if Sean Fitzpatrick had stayed on as chief executive, would it have made any difference? Could they have withstood the crash that ultimately came? That's a good
2: question. Uh, You know, the kind of counter narrative is to around whether or not things would have been different had Sean Fitzpatrick stayed on. I I don't think so. Uh, I remember talking to a banker in AIB who said that if you look back at 2004, even if you had pressed stop in 2004, which would have required some kind of benign dictator to to, to, to put put the brake on, that it still wouldn't have been enough. Maybe the losses wouldn't have been as great. Maybe the 64 billion bailout would have been 50 billion or 40 billion and the cost wouldn't have been as great. But I think the trajectory that Sean Fitzpatrick put the bank on was never going to change. Okay, he handed over a bank that was 34 billion loan book and David Drum supercharged it to 73 in the space of three years. Um, but I think that the direction that the bank was going in under Fitzpatrick really was going had doomed it to failure in a way. It was so exposed to the property market. Um, I mean, Alan Dukes, the, who later took over as chairman of the bank after it was taken over um, by the state, made a, made a good point he said that they had actually had a very good business loan book and if they kind of stuck to their knitting on that, they would have been quite a clever bank. And I think there is some truth to that. But the problem is the bank was so overexposed to the property market, to builders, to construction, and a lot of the equity was gone. Like what they would do was they would say, well, we to a builder, you've got these sites coming on on train, you're going to be selling and um, various uh, houses in those developments there's no need for a deposit on the next one let's just roll it from what we have now so it was kind of a house of cards was built up there was not enough cash in the system There was not enough equity built in and the challenge and the difficulty for the irish government and the irish state was anglo kind of led that charge and the other banks went from kind of mocking them initially initially to trying to emulate them so aib didn't have the extent of the problems that Anglo had, but it had very, very big problems because of that effort to try and win back that business from Anglo. And they were very, very concerned about the loss of that business. Michael Buckley, who was chief executive of AIB in the mid-noughties, set up a team to see, well, we need to have a team to win back business from Anglo. So really, that my view on it is that, that, that Anglo was this kind of one-trick pony in the property market as a property lender. And it was leading this unregulated race where the hands-off regulator wasn't going to intervene. And that was really a kind of deadly cocktail of of problems that was coming down the tracks, which ultimately um, caused Anglo to collapse and the rest of the Irish banking sector under severe pressure in 2008,
1: 2009. Yeah, now, of course, we know that Anglo, uh, like the other Irish banks, was, was bailed out in 2008. It slipped into nationalisation in 2009. Sean Fitzpatrick was gone by that point. Um, I just wonder what happened to him after that. He kind of became public enemy number one, or maybe number two, after David Drum. I don't know who was one and two, but he was certainly up there, wasn't he? He was. I don't think he helped himself in that in that regard. Um, he gave a kind of very um,
2: ill judged interview with Marion Finnukin just days after the bank guarantee, where he he refused to say sorry, and I think that that was a that was a very that was a big mistake because didn't help in, in, in presenting the banking sector in a particular light. He said he, he wouldn't say sorry, but he did say thank you. And his point in making that statement was he believed, like many bankers in Ireland at the time, that the problems were, an international, were international problems, that if Lehman Brothers hadn't collapsed and if the international credit markets hadn't frozen, where the banks were borrowing a lot of their own money to lend on to the likes of the developers, if that hadn't happened, then everything would have been fine. And we know that that's not the case. So to go out on public radio and say that, it looked and reflected very, very badly on not just him, but on the wider banking system. Certainly a lot of fellow bankers are very angry that he, and some of the comments he made during that interview. Um, But you're right. I mean, I think it varied between David Drum and Sean Fitzpatrick about who was public enemy number one. I mean, this isn't just kind of retrospect looking back at... um, W- w- the role that they played. But I do think that the likes of businessman Paul Colson, who we quoted in the paper today, is saying, you know, it's not fair to lay the blame solely at Sean Fitzpatrick's door for the collapse of Anglo and the wider financial system. And he's correct in that. I mean, Fitzpatrick did play a pivotal role in that, but he's not solely to blame, of course.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. He was very close to Dennis O'Brien and uh, Dermot Desmond paid tribute to him as well. So a lot of very influential and successful Irish business people Still held Sean Fitzpatrick in high regard, and were still willing to be seen out, uh, out and about with him uh, post two thousand and eight. Even though, to the public, he you know his reputation was was in the gutter.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of businessmen, certainly privately, uh, and and I think in the case of Dermot Desmond and, and Dennis O'Brien, publicly came out and were quite supportive of, of Sean Fitzpatrick. And you know, it's a complicated history. I mean, I think that. If you look back at what Anglo did, they absolutely did give a lot of businesses their start. They Anglo's unique selling point in the late 80s through the 90s was that they would back people where AIB and Bank of Ireland may not back them or it may be very slow to back them or maybe very, may very slow to offer loans. So a lot of business people who did exceptionally well and became very, very successful and, and withstood the crash uh, of 2008 to 2010, I think a lot of those businessmen probably got to where they are because of Anglo. And that's what uh, Dermot Desmond was saying when we quoted him in the paper today. You know, he was saying that he played a major part in Ireland's economic recovery from the dark days of the pre-Celtic Tiger Depression. And I think, yes, Anglo did play an important role in helping businesses out, but of course what happened in 2008 and thereafter is going to overshadow any any of the kind of good business that Anglo did in the prior two decades.
1: Yeah, now there were early morning visits from Gardee to his house, weren't there? And there were a couple of court, a few court cases, and um, that he had to go through as well, uh, long running ones as well. It must have been incredibly stressful on him.
2: I think it was. I think you could see the toll it took on him as well. He, I mean, he noticeably aged. You could see that in the court process, and it was a long, long process. If you think that he resigned as chief executive um, of Anglo Irish Bank in December of two thousand and eight, and he resigned over the fact that he had concealed those loans, their multi million loans. Over a very long period of time, and he concealed it from shareholders, but that the criminal process had not ended, and it ended with him being acquitted. He never, he was never convicted. He, ne- he never did any jail time or anything. It, but that process took um, took nine years, which is an extraordinary length of time for someone to have to endure that. Um, and it wasn't just the loans case. He he was also found not guilty of illegally supporting the bank's share price um, in a scheme that involved loans to the 10 customers to take out the shareholding that was held by Sean Quinn. Uh, and then he had his own personal problems as well. He had his, his financial issues where he had to go through the bankruptcy courts. He filed for bankruptcy in 2010. And that was a long process too. So all of those things would, of course, take a toll on anyone. What's his legacy going to be, in Simon? I think his legacy is going to be Definitely overshadowed by what happened. Um, this is a bank that really drove um, other banks, as well as itself, uh, onto the rocks. Um, and I think that the fact that the bank left the state nursing losses, the bank's losses of twenty nine billion, was a contributing factor in the government having been forced to take uh, an international bailout from the EU and the IMF in twenty ten. I think all those things will overshadow things that he did as a businessman th- things that he did as a banker things that he did to help other businesses uh, and bankroll them and I think from the perspective of of the uh, of his role at Anglo I think uh, a lot of former colleagues would feel slightly aggrieved by the fact that they um were convicted on certain issues and that he wasn't um I think that has has left a lot of bad taste in the mouths of his former colleagues but I think um, his legacy will always be uh, as someone who ran a bank that ultimately cost the state a huge, huge amount of money.
1: Sure, mind you, maybe all the blame shouldn't be laid there on his shoulders because politicians ultimately decided to bail out Anglo Irish Bank. And at the O'Rourke's banking inquiry a few years back, and um, there were certain people, including Patrick Honahan who suggested that um, that probably wasn't the best option at the time. They could have they could have gone a different road with Anglo.
2: Well, absolutely, and I think. Um, You know, a lot of blame has to be laid at the door of government and the regulators. I think bankers will push the envelope. Bankers will do what they can, what they can do, and what they're allowed to do by the regulator. And the fact that we had such a light touch regulation, uh, regulatory system over a long period of time, and that the government didn't strengthen that regulatory system, allowed the banks to borrow borrow excessively to lend excessively. And I think there's an awful lot of blame to go around over what happened. Um, Part of that has to be laid at the door of sean fitzpatrick and bankers of course because they ran and managed and set the strategy for um for the financial institutions but of course government successive governments and successive regulators have a lot a uh, lot of responsibility to carry as well
1: okay simon carswell thank you for joining inside business thanks very much kieran we're going to take a short break now when we return umber kennedy will be telling me about the biggest climate villains among european airlines back in a few moments
0: now more than ever climate change needs business action but how can we move faster to slow climate change? We know it will take business and government working together to protect our environment for future generations. EY is leading the way in helping organizations deliver real benefits and drive long-term value in their approach to sustainability. By working together, we can reframe the future and create a better, more sustainable world for all. Visit ey.com forward slash IE to find out more.
1: Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. With the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow continuing, aviation is one of the major sectors in the spotlight for the amount of carbon emissions produced each year. Umber Kennedy, economics correspondent of the Irish Times, has been looking at that, and he joins me now on the line to shed some light on who the biggest emitters of carbon are among European airlines. Umber Kennedy, thank you for joining us now. At the beginning of this week, you wrote a very interesting column about aviation emissions And you were making the point that the real villains of the piece are the likes of uh, Lufthansa or France and British Airways and not Ryanair, in spite of the fact that Ryanair is probably the biggest carrier across Europe now. Explain all.
0: Yeah. So the interesting thing is that the bulk of aviation emissions actually comes from long haul flights and they're not covered by the European uh, emissions trading system. That's a system that kind of penalizes companies or makes them pay for the cost of emitting uh, polluting carbons. kind of the cornerstone of the bloc's uh, climate policy. So as a result, the legacy carriers, the Lufthansa's, the British Airways, the Air France's of the world, they don't pay for the bulk of the emissions that they produce. So uh, just to give you an idea, Lufthansa doesn't pay for 70% of the emissions it produces. Uh, British Airways doesn't pay for 86% of the emissions it produces. And Air France doesn't pay for 83% of the emissions it produces. Now, in contrast, Ryanair, as a short-haul carrier, must pay via carbon credits for about 90% of its emissions. And that's a bill that amounts to, like, um, hundreds of millions of euros annually each year. Um, So when these long-haul emissions are factored in, the three worst polluting airlines in Europe actually turn out to be Lufthansa, British Airways and Air France. With nineteen million, eighteen million, and fourteen million tons of CO two emissions recorded in two thousand and nineteen, and of course that was the last year we had kind of normal aviation patterns. So um, that the fact that uh, you know Ryanair are constantly pinpointed as the kind of climate villain is slightly misleading. It's really because the legacy carriers and their long haul emissions are not really captured in the system that we use or the system that the European uses to make uh, polluters pay. So in many ways, they get away
1: scot-free. Yeah, I mean, presumably Aer Lingus would fall into that category as well, because Aer Lingus operates long haul across the Atlantic. Yeah, exactly. And Aer
0: Lingus, I think in 2019, produced about 8.8 million uh, uh, tonnes of uh, carbon And that's a little bit behind Ryanair. But when you think of the size of Ryanair's European footprint and the size of Aer Lingus, it's still pretty hefty and it proves the point that long-haul emissions are probably the bigger problem. The problem is that once uh, planes leave um, the European skies, nobody really accounts for the emissions. And so this is going untracked.
1: Okay, so it's the fact that they're they're leaving Europe on these long-haul flights. Uh, Is that the reason why they're not having to pay? Or is it simply that they're better at lobbying the EU or their national governments perhaps are better at lobbying the EU to turn a blind eye to long haul? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a bit of both. Um,
0: Nobody's capturing the emissions or at least charging them for the emissions they produce once they leave European skies. And the ETS system has, Europe has tried on several different occasions to uh, extend the ETS system to long haul aviation. But on each time, industry has lobbied against it and plans have been scuppered. So on both counts, they're kind of getting away with it. They're lobbying governments, lobbying the EU, and then there's no kind of
1: buy-in from global powers to try and address this issue. Now, mind you, we, we need to reduce emissions, don't we? It's not enough just to pay for the emissions that you're producing. We we need to actually reduce them if they're, if we're to uh, save the planet. So where is aviation at in terms of reducing carbon emissions? How do we go about it? Is it, is it down to uh, more efficient aircraft? Is it down to us all taking fewer flights? Is it down to... Electric aircraft rather than using aviation fuel. How how are we going to get there?
0: Well, you, you've put your finger on, on the nobody the issue. Uh, there's a concept in economics called the efficiency paradox. And that suggests that, you know, as goods and services become more efficient to produce, we consume more of them. So in America a few years ago, they became more efficient at producing fridges and everyone bought bigger fridges. Now, you can see how that plays out on an emissions front. And bigger fridges means more emissions. So just to give you the aircraft example, fuel efficiency in aircraft is improving all every year. It tends to improve by 1% or 2% each year. The problem is demand for the passenger demand goes up by 3 or 4% each year. The result then is uh, more emissions despite having more fuel-efficient aircraft. So it comes down to this. We can go so far with technology, there's going to have to be a reduction in consumption somewhere along the line. A lot of these equations, aviation, agriculture, um, you know, home eating, transport, all these different things, you know, we can get so far with technology and fuel efficiencies, but at some point we may have to reduce consumption. So, um, you know, that, that's that's a big issue. You can see that Ryanair is introducing the, the new Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. And the reason why the airline was so keen to get its order for that new model in and why the industry as a whole has overlooked the two fatal crashes associated with these aircraft is that they um, promised to cut fuel and maintenance costs and carry more uh, passengers. So that's a kind of triple win for the aviation industry. Um uh, You know, so these planes uh, do do what Ryanair will help Ryanair do what they're best at, which is essentially drive down airfares. But driving down airfares just means we get more passenger demand and we get more emissions. So one of the big initiatives that uh, the EU has has undertaken is is called EU Refuel, and that's an initiative to try and insist that the um, producers of airline fuel uh, add in more fuel-efficient fuel into the mix. So they've got this plan where they would uh, um, force um, fuel uh, suppliers to put in at least 2% of a, a lower emissions or a safer uh, emissions fuel by 2025. Now, that's all well and good, but already IATA, the... Um, representative body for these legacy carriers have been in Brussels lobbying to make sure that this uh, refuel initiative will only apply to short-haul aviation, again, excluding their members and the bulk of the long-haul carriers from this more cleaner initiative. And, of course, there's no technology needed here. We can
1: uh, adopt this pretty quickly. Owen, I would make the point that Lynn Embleton, the Erlinga's chief executive Uh, in speaking to the Irish Times the other day. She was saying that the European Union needs to do more to assist manufacturers uh, in terms of trying to uh, come up with, uh, trying to develop more energy-efficient engines and, uh, indeed, aviation fuel. And she was saying that the US government is much more proactive uh, in that regard. It actually uh, gives money for research in those areas, whereas in the European Union we're not doing that. Maybe that's something we need to look at. I'm sure that is something we need to look at, and I'm sure... You know, she has a point, but, you
0: know, it does seem like when you look at, say, you know, um, car manufacturers, they're putting so much money to develop, you know, electric vehicles. I think Volkswagen have a kind of R&D fund of around 65 billion. I mean, look what the airlines themselves are putting in to develop these initiatives. It's it's paltry. It's nothing. I think Ryanair have like a 12 million fund for R&D, and the main emphasis is driving down uh, tickets. Um, you know and producing carrying more passengers so it's it's very in contrast to the um car industry where the whole um industry and technology is changing uh, airlines the changes are small and minuscule i mean allow, uh, allowing fuel become 2% more emissions uh, you know efficient by 2025 it's
1: hardly a massive giant step compared to where the car industry is going Yeah, mind you, of course, the pandemic has laid waste to the aviation industry, hasn't it? It's costed uh, billions in lost revenue. Ireland is is an island nation, obviously, and we need aviation to get people on and off the island for the most part. Uh, And it's very important in terms of foreign direct investment and tourism. So how do we as a nation square the circle of reducing emissions on the one hand um, while continuing to grow tourism and continuing to grow foreign direct investment? That is, you know, the six million dollar question. I don't think there is. Uh, a squaring
0: of that circle i mean we do ne- need aviation you know for our business and especially for tourism and reducing um reducing emissions from from aviation is going to be a difficult one to do um electric aircraft seems to be a long way off so i'd be kind of foolhardy if i was pointing in that direction um, at the moment, it seems like producing more fuel, uh, you know, more lower carbon fuels seems to be the way we could actually, you
1: know, keep the level of aircraft in the sky. Right. And what about yourself, phone? I mean, you know, as, as you sort of look to the future, how many, how many flights did you take in 2019 pre-pandemic? And if you look out to next year, what, what, you know, has this whole focus on climate change, has it changed your view as to how many flights you should be taking per year?
0: Yeah, well, I think you know um, we're all guilty of, of 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 buying cheap food, of buying fast fashion, and uh, who hasn't like um, boasted about getting a cheap airline ticket? So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely guilty of uh, partaking in the driving down of airfares that Ryanair seems to have championed. Um, yeah, it's it's a question for all
1: of us. Um, it's a difficult one to answer. All right, uh, on Burke Kennedy, we we'll leave it there. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Simon Carswell and Owen Burke-Kennedy. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.